all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during the hour concerning any kind of health topics or issues that you might be dealing with. You can reach us online live now. Uh, I did say online, but I meant live at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. I would encourage you to call earlier rather than to wait to the second half of the hour. We always have a little bit more callers in the second half, but a little bit more time for your call in the first half of the hour. So go ahead and punch those numbers into your phone and call in. I know people are probably having all kinds of different questions about different kinds of symptoms that you might be having, medications and so forth. You can reach us live today and we'll try try to answer your questions to the best of our abilities. If you're not able to call, you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. I also like to remind you that our website at mpbonline.org has archive programs. Usually uh, those go up about 24 hours after they air. You can search for Southern Remedy and it'll go right to the repository of previous programs that you can listen to. A lot of times you'll catch maybe uh, something midway through the discussion and want to go back and listen. That's an excellent way to do that. Hope everybody had a great holiday season and uh, Christmas. We got New Year's coming up. I hope you're staying safe out there. And uh, it is really hard. I know I've had some discussions uh, with my friends and family. It is difficult, particularly during this time of year, I think, uh, for most people to still adhere to social distancing, particularly with all of the increased rates that we have of COVID. There's just, uh, you know, just because of different exposures, I've been tested three times. Uh, you know, I've had other family members that uh, have been tested. Actually, uh, my youngest son had COVID uh, right before Thanksgiving. So it's uh, certainly with the prevalence of it in, this, in the uh, community being as high as it is, it's really important during these times I can say from the hospital standpoint and resources across the state, we are at a critical level um, where we're really, we don't want to have any more patients than we already have. We're already having delays of patients coming into the hospital uh, to appropriate either a regular room or an ICU just because of the volume of patients that we're having. Um, There are many rural hospitals Uh, that are even uh, in worse shape, and we're having some uh, difficulties with transfers across the state such that we've had to centralize a lot of that. So we're doing the best we can. Certainly, we've learned a lot in the last uh, nine or ten months about how to treat COVID once it's in the hospital. Um, Again, there's not much uh, to treat it. I know there's a lot of fallacies out there. In fact, I had a conversation yesterday 
uh, with a patient about some information that they were getting from a uh, from a testing clinic facility that basically was advocating for different things. There's really not anything that's been proven to help prevent COVID beyond the social distancing, the mask, uh, and um, you know, trying to uh, to minimize contact with people, and of course now the vaccine, which we're all excited about. I've gotten my first dose of the vaccine and plan to get my second dose on the eighth of January. Um, but besides that, the only thing that's really um, uh, been shown to be useful is monoclonal antibodies, which again they're very difficult to get. Uh, a lot of times you have to be in a, in a trial to get those. This is the same therapy that the president received when he first uh, was uh, positive with COVID. Uh, it does show, has some promise right now. They're still studying that to see what the effects are. Uh, it's not something that everybody can get, you know, if you have an exposure to COVID or if you're positive for COVID. But that's about the only thing out there early on that can help treat it. Of course, we have gotten better at treating all the downstream effects of COVID, uh, like how do you support the lungs on the ventilator in the best appropriate way? How do we uh, give various medications that help decrease the inflammatory response based on some uh, markers in the bloodstream and other clinical indicators? But beyond that, we really don't have anything that can adequately prevent the virus from doing what it does to sort of shut down uh, different organs and have an inflammatory response throughout the body. So just want to remind people of that. And if you, even if you've gotten, if you've been fortunate enough so far to get the vaccine, uh, certainly we'll see more opportunities for more people at risk to get that uh, in the next few weeks and months um, that uh, I would encourage you, number one, to get it. But number two, don't be sort of lulled into a false sense of security after you've gotten it. We still need to, at least for the next four or five months, to really buckle down on the same kind of things that we've been talking about with adequate and appropriate use of, of mask, social distancing, and avoiding large crowds of people. So just keep that in mind. Uh, again, I am, if we have time, we may talk a little bit more about the vaccine. I am excited about it. I haven't uh, actually worked a clinic to give out the vaccine here at, um, at, at UMMC and uh, haven't seen that much excitement in a long time, so it was good to see that. We're going to go to our first caller. If you have a call, uh, question about your health, you can call us at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question about a hypothetical question about blood transfusions. Yes, ma'am. If a person receives a, a unit of donor platelets or donor serum or any blood product and let's say that person goes out and commits a crime within 24 hours would their dna would the donor dna show up in that blood uh sample of the, of the per uh it depends yeah that's a great question about that's a little forensics question there sue that's good uh so so dna samples can be from different things they can be from uh, you know, skin, blood, body fluids are probably the best way to do that. Some cells have more DNA than others, like, for instance, red blood cells, mature red blood cells that help uh, carry oxygen throughout our body. They really don't have DNA anymore. So the nucleus of that cell is totally been extracted by that point. Uh, so if you do receive blood products, though, there's a possibility of that. But you have to keep in mind the overwhelming 
you know, if you're testing blood or body fluids or, or skin tissue, hair, whatever, the overwhelming majority of the DNA is going to be from that person and not from something that they got transfused in them. So it's possible, but you're going to have two DNA samples and the majority of those DNA samples are going to be from that individual person. So it's probably good uh, science fiction uh, material. Maybe there might be a CSI episode that has to do with that, but I think in reality, it'd be pretty cut and dry to, to see that, uh, that DNA. You have to keep in mind too, I'm not a legal expert, of course, but uh, DNA is not 100%. You know, they do use that. It's been a great tool for forensic scientists to use at crime scenes to help identify individuals, uh, but it's not 100%. So uh, our ability to detect DNA is has gotten a whole lot better. So even with small amounts of DNA, we can amplify that and, um, and uh, have a match sometimes. So I don't think that would really interfere with that, uh, Kay. I mean, Sue... Uh, so it's, it's, uh, but I, you know, it's a possibility that you might pick it up, but I don't think it would really affect their determination of what that true DNA is. Well, I forgot to ask you a question too. When, when a person receives blood products of any kind or transfusions or what, what, how long does the blood products last? I mean, how long did, can they carry oxygen? I mean, how long did, was this blood product last once it's transfused? Is it? Yeah, like that's a great question, too. Four days, I mean, how long does it last in your system? Right. Yeah, so it depends on, on what you're getting. So if you're getting, like, whole blood or what we call packed red blood cells, which is just the red blood cells, yeah. that's probably one of the more common things that people get, say, if you're anemic to the point where you need a blood transfusion. Uh, you, you lose about 1% of your red blood cells per day. So those red blood cells that are in your system will start to, you'll start to lose those in the same way that you would lose your own red blood cells. Now, the other caveat to that is a lot of times you're given red blood cells because you're actively bleeding or losing blood somewhere or destroying blood through an autoimmune process. And that would, you know, lessen the effect. So sometimes people, you know, they'll get a blood transfusion and they'll be fine until their body starts making, you know, red blood cells appropriately in their bone marrow at other times, because of other things that are going on, those red blood cells may be sort of chewed up or destroyed um, in, in a matter of days or even sooner than that. And they may need more if they're losing blood actively. Other blood products have, um, have different uh, uh, half-lives. In other words, how long they last inside your blood. So fresh frozen plasma is a good example of that. It degrades fairly quickly within a couple of hours. Um, platelets. Uh, can be, you may need multiple transfusions of platelets. So there all depends on what you're getting and what's going on in the body. Um, so, you know, again, if you come in with a GI bleed where you're losing blood into your uh, gastrointestinal tract, you may need multiple transfusions to keep up with that because you're continually losing blood, both your own blood and the donor's blood. But that's a great question, though, particularly for, you know, red blood cells. It's about 1% per day normally that you would you would destroy and turn over. Okay, well, thanks. It's interesting. I appreciate it. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, uh, answering your questions and calls about any kind of healthcare issues that you might have. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Let's go to Nick in Starkville. Good morning, Nick. Thank you for calling. Good morning. Appreciate you taking my call. Should a person feel that he's coming down with with COVID-19 uh, and what is the first step that he needs to take, and what are the steps here after that he will need to take after afterwards in order to try to control it? Sure. Yeah, great question. So if you've, you know, once you, if the, the, the sort of stepwise process, you know, it has different symptoms in different people. So most of the symptoms are pretty, of COVID are pretty similar to the flu. So it's things like fever, chills, cough, uh, upper respiratory symptoms, uh, loss of, of smell and taste is one of those that's particular to COVID, extreme fatigue, shortness of breath, particularly when walking or doing activities. That combined with a known exposure is a pretty high probability that you might have it. Um, I would go ahead and call your physician, your personal physician, and let them know about that just to establish that contact in case something happens. Now, what, you the, know, the next what, step, what is, go ahead. What, hap- what happens if it happens over the weekend or during the weekend and you can't get in touch with your physician? Yeah, that's, again, it depends on symptoms. If you start to feel shorter breath, uh, particularly if you're just walking around, you may need to be seen uh, at a, an emergency facility like an emergency room or an after-hours clinic, um, particularly if you have a bluish discoloration around your lips or in your extremities, or if you're disoriented, if other people in the house see that you're, you know, that you're not thinking clearly, uh, certainly if you passed out or something like that. But those are all indications that you need to have quicker care um, you know, an emergency facility to make sure that your oxygen levels are appropriate, they're not following, and that you don't have other problems uh, from the virus. Now, if you're not, it's probably okay to wait, you know, through the weekend to sort of see if, you know, and, and let your physician know. You ask about things, you know, precautions to do. Uh, taking it easy is probably the best one, so you don't want to overexert yourself. We know that if you sort of try to push through this, go to work, that kind of thing, that can make you worse and it can expose other people to the virus. So after, particularly after you develop symptoms, you can start, you know, spreading this virus to other people that you're around, particularly if you're within six feet of them for more than 15 minutes uh, total time a day. So definitely want to wear a mask to help protect other people and isolate yourself at home in a separate bedroom, if at all possible, with its separate um, uh, toilet facilities and and, uh, uh, bathing facilities. Um, And then making sure that you also have somebody that can care for you in that situation that can, you know, bring food to you, those kinds of things. Now, as you know, people ask about other things that you can take, 
And I know there's a lot of even physicians that are um, that are advocating to uh, take other things like Zithromax, Zithromycin, that's an antibiotic uh, that is used to treat different uh, bacterial infections, um, zinc, Pepsid, there's a lot of things out there. Uh, we've gone through this enough to know that there's not any evidence in any of the trials looking at those, and they have been studied, that they help prevent you from getting the symptoms or from getting COVID or that they make your COVID experience any better. They don't do anything against the virus. Most of those are probably not going to hurt you, and there's not any evidence that that causes any, you know, any negative effects. Um, of course, we, you know, antibiotics just don't treat viruses, so that's that's the Zithromax is probably not a good idea and can cause resistance of other organisms. But I just want to make that I know it's, there's a lot of information out there, but if you I've been following the trials and you really don't have any evidence to suggest that any of those work. Um, if one of the reasons for calling your physician is there are a little bit of of access to monoclonal antibodies. These are artificially made antibodies against the virus. Uh, this is a little bit different than the pooled antibodies from people who have had the virus. Uh, so if you donate blood, they're checking for those. And that's been used a little bit in the inpatient environment. Not much success with that. But the monoclonal antibodies uh, have had at least initial uh, promise in helping prevent the infection. But um, you're, it, again, it's hard to get in those trials. It's sort of hit or miss. Uh, some patients would qualify, some don't. But as soon as you can, you may want to, you know, contact your physician to see if any of those things work. Then again, they may tell you to take other things. I'm just saying I'm following this. I've uh, been following it from day one. If there were things that work, believe me, I would tell you. Uh, but saying. most of the other things don't. Now, you, for the symptoms, you again, you can take ibuprofen and Tylenol to help with sort of the aches and pains and fever. Um, and making sure that you're well hydrated, that you're eating appropriately. Uh, but if any of those things, if you can't do that, or if you become more short of breath, you need to be seen uh, in the ER setting. Most physicians' offices are not seeing you directly in the office just because of contamination of, of spreading the virus to other people that are there in the building, uh, other patients. Um, so they may have be set up in different clinics to have a COVID-specific clinic uh, area that's either at the hospital or in a clinic that can uh, treat you and, and uh, you know, sort of evaluate you to see if, if you need to go uh, to a hospitalized setting. Okay. One other question, and I'm, and then yeah. I'm through. Uh, if you should come down with pneumonia with it, which seems to be fairly common, it, it is a viral pneumonia, right? Yeah, it is. But uh, you have to keep in mind, too, it's sort of like flu. So you can have a, an inflammation and an infection of, of influenza in the lungs, just like you can with COVID. But then you can also get other infections. So the physician would make that decision based on the x-ray, CT scans, and clinical, uh, clinical information on whether or not to treat you with antibiotics for bacterial infections that can sort of set up shop on top of that viral pneumonia. But Generally speaking, you're right. There's not really anything that can help that pneumonia get any better because it's a viral pneumonia. And right now, we don't have any antiviral drugs against COVID. So um, by that time, uh, but, what I was just going to say, by the time you find that out, what I was going to say is by the time you find out what is viral or not, it, it, you are under his care. So you don't really need it. That's not that important. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if you're if you're to that point um, now, if you look, what we know is if you if you do a CT scan of everybody who has COVID, you can find changes in the lungs, even in younger people. And they may have minimal symptoms, but they may have some changes there. But the symptoms that you would have, you know, with a full blown pneumonia of the lungs like you're describing or a pneumonitis, that's going to be. Uh, yeah, you're going to have shortness of breath and uh, other symptoms that you'd be uh, you'd probably be in the hospital at that point. Yeah. OK. I very much appreciate your information. Thank you so much. Yes, sir, Nick. Thank you for calling, and uh, you have a happy new year. Let's go to, uh, I think it's uh, it's not Ella. Ella from Memphis. Yes, yes it is Ella. Thank you. Um, actually, nobody's ever accused me of thinking clearly, and I feel like I have COVID every time I cr- climb up a good set of stairs, but that's not why I called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it, um, it's interesting you should say that because a lot of people, uh, you know, have baseline things like allergies, for instance, um, that, uh, you know, as we went through fall, I mean, certainly our ragweed that we have here in the south and, you know, other allergens. A lot of people have uh, allergy symptoms that are there year to year, but you always think about COVID and have to, you know, ask yourself those questions and maybe even your physician about that. Um, I did, however, call for, and I get these two confused, eczema and uh, psoriasis. I get these two confused. I have the milder one, whichever that is. Um, Uh And occasionally it pops up here and there, and I have a little spot on my, like, thumb knuckle, whatever you call that. And um, and I've been prescribed uh, triamcinolone, I think it's Triamcinolone, Uh uh-huh. That, that I've been prescribed that this is the second time I've been, it's been given to me, but I mean, for, for <clears throat> a spot smaller than a square inch, they gave me three tubes. And I'm wondering how long am I supposed to put this stuff on and not see a result? Like how long is it supposed to take to clear up? Cause this has been very persistent um, for over like two months now. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that's probably time to get it seen about if it's not clearing up and if it's still in the same spot. Let me let me back up a little bit. Seems like you know sort of uh, you know a good bit about both of these uh, conditions that you mentioned. So, but other people may not. But uh, so eczema or atopic dermatitis, they're used a little bit interchangeably. But basically, that is a an allergic response. It's one of the atopic diseases along with uh, asthma and allergic rhinitis or sort of hay fever type symptoms. Um, that's, that's an allergic response to something in your environment. It can be something that you come into contact with on the skin, particularly if it's you know, in the atopic dermatitis or eczema um, that, that uh, sort of sets you off. It could be things that you're eating. It could be things that you're you know, inhaling too, that you get the skin rash. So it doesn't have to be something that's in contact with it. That sounds pretty localized, though, and it's in a place that's not that typical. Usually you'd have other symptoms other places for it to be, you know, eczema. Psoriasis is an anti-inflammatory, I'm sorry, is an autoimmune disease that actually affects the, the uh, layers of the skin. And it can look similar to atopic dermatitis, uh, but it acts a little bit different. The treatment is different, too, in a lot of ways. Um, atopic or eczema uh, is uh, topical steroids like triamcinolone are usually pretty effective with that. 
So we usually uh, advocate for a, a combination of what we call emollients, and these are lotions or creams that hydrate the skin, prevent it from getting dried out because that's going to set you up for uh, for a place that, that um, is affected more with eczema. And then also the topical steroids like triamcinolone. If you've been using that on that small spot for weeks or months and it's not getting any better, I would have it looked at because it may not be that. There's other things that can cause, um, cause rashes that look exactly like eczema. Fungal lesions can sometimes do that and not go away. And certainly they can uh, not, wouldn't totally go away with the triamcinolone. Um, but I would, I would get you a good dermatologist or if your physician is pretty versed in looking at that, you can um, get them to take a look at it. They may can do that over telehealth now and you could give, you know, send them a picture of it too. Um, and they may can diagnose that over the phone. In some instances, you may have to have a skin biopsy. Biopsies are actually pretty easy to do in the skin. And that can be, you know, you don't have to be a dermatologist to do that. Primary care physicians can do a little punch biopsy. And that'll give you a lot of good information. It's not all the information. It's not, you know, it's not like you can send that to a dermatologist or to a dermatopathologist and they'll say, oh, this is exactly what it is. You do have to take the clinical, uh, the clinical sort of presentation into account. But that's, I would get it looked at. Two months is a long time to be putting a steroid on that small area and not to be improving. Um, and it may be something else that they need to look at. If you've got access to a good dermatologist, I'd go and see them. That's probably your best bet. Yeah, because it gets, it looks like it's about to get better and it gets, you know, like moist and, you know, hydrated, I guess. And then, you know, like if I stop using it for like one day, then all of a sudden it's like itchy, rat, you know, like again and cracks and oh, it's terrible. Yeah. And it's right, it's yeah, like the, annoying. It's not like, you know, but they did die, you know, but it's annoying, you know, to be there. Right. And there's some other things that can sometimes mimic that, like uh, sun damaged areas that are sort of, you know, pre precancerous lesions, that particularly if they've gone on that long. They can look similar to that, and they, of course they're they're dealt with a little bit differently. But actinic keratoses can sometimes look like that and be scaly and itchy, uh, and that's just a precancerous sun damaged um, um, rash or lesion. But um, I, I think a dermatologist is probably going to be your best bet to, and they may look at it across the room and say uh, that's what they do every day, and they can say, oh yeah, this is what it is. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions or comments about that you have about any kind of health issue related 
to your own health or somebody else's, you can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Got the new year coming up. Uh, lots of opportunities to make some changes. Um, I'd encourage everybody. It's also a great time to reflect on 2020 um, and uh, the things that we want to remember that we should remember, maybe some things that we want to forget. Excellent opportunity to really change some of our own health habits. I know I've been seeing some of my patients, some of them have been doing really good with COVID and uh, uh, you know, giving them an opportunity to have more exercise or have more control maybe over their diet. Um, uh, other times, uh, maybe not so much, uh, that's a good time as, as everybody does. Most new year's resolutions don't get, uh, completed uh, through more than about, uh, 20 or 30 days, but, um, still worth the effort to do that, to take some reflection on your personal health and make some changes that will improve it for the next year. We're hoping that 2021 is going to be a celebration year of, uh, some of the, uh, things that we've dealt with with COVID that uh, we can make some improvements and have some forward traction. So I want to encourage you to do that and uh, encourage you to uh, keep in touch with other people in the ways that you can, uh, particularly uh, safe, safe ways, uh, connect with them. This is a great time to call people uh, that uh, come to your mind that you haven't uh, had the opportunities to interact with just because of social distancing. All right, we're going to go to Martha, who's in Jackson. Good morning, Martha. Good morning. Thank uh, you for calling. I, thank you for taking it. Um, I have had several, seen several specialists about a, and some biopsies about a um, autoimmune disease on my scalp, and I'm on doxycycline, I think it's what it's called. Yeah, and now they are putting me on hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and that'll probably be for an ex- extended period. I've had an eye exam for my peripheral vision. But when I got the medicine and read all the side effects, it kind of freaked me out about taking it at all. Um, so I just wanted to see what you think about that drug. I know it's at one time was used for COVID. I don't have COVID. Um, but I just kind of need some help on that. Yeah. Uh, hydroxychloroquine has been around a long time. It's uh, one of the non-steroidal um, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs that's been used against the immune system to try to modulate that. So in your case, an immune, your, your body is developing an abnormal immune response to your scalp and causing some of the problems there. Um, so it's, it's most commonly used in things like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, mm-hmm. uh, although it's been used a couple of other times. You mentioned COVID. Early on, it was used in COVID a good bit, and again, that's one of those things that wasn't really, you know, shown to be beneficial in protecting people against COVID or, or treating it. But it's still a great um, um, medication uh, that's used that can spare some of the other effects of other ones. Now, anytime you're dealing with an autoimmune disease, every medication that you use is going to have some side effects with it, and of course. As you mentioned, you know, reading through that list, there's a lot of them with Plaquenil or, or hydroxychloroquine. Uh, Plaquenil is sort of the, the uh, trade name for it. So um, uh, you have to balance that out against the benefits of that. Uh, so um, the biggest things are things that can be prevented and that things are reversible so that if you develop those with uh, hydroxychloroquine, you can back off of it and those go away. Um, you know, the, the eye findings that you can have with it, uh, the eye complications or things that 
your dermatologist may want you to see an ophthalmologist beforehand to get sort of a baseline exam and then monitor you uh, at least once a year uh, while you're on it. But those are discussions that you probably need to have with your dermatologist to say, okay, are the risks worth the benefits? What's the likelihood that this is going to work? Uh, sometimes it's a trial and error type thing with, uh, with the autoimmune uh, medications, but you need to, you know, to sort of know about those. But that being said, there's a lot of people, I've had a lot of my patients on hydroxychloroquine. I've started it uh, on my patients for rheumatoid arthritis. They've gotten some great relief and had uh, very little side effects, if any. Um, having a, a, a physician that understands that and that can make sure there's a lot of things you can do to, to sort of screen for those uh, side effects that was important. But um, again, it's been around a long time. It can, if it can keep you off of steroids and other uh, medications that have more side effects, uh, it's good medication. Okay, so you don't see it as abnormally dangerous. Uh, I don't. Again, it's okay. uh, you do have to be aware of those side effects right. as a patient and your physician, and then monitor for those. And if you have any of those, you can you know come off of that. And there may be some other um, other medications. But yeah, it's I, again, I'm not a dermatologist. Mm -hmm. I'm not a rheumatologist. I feel comfortable with prescribing hydroxychloroquine for rheumatoid arthritis okay. um, and monitoring for those side term. effects. I mean, long term. Right, month. right. Okay, okay. That's great. That's what I needed to hear. Thank you. All Thank right, you Martha. so much. Thank you for calling. Let's go to uh, Rachel in Starkville. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, doctor. Hope you're well. Um, Thank you, and you, you too. Well, I am. Uh, I am diabetic, and I'm, I like to stay hydrated, and I uh, wonder, is it okay for me to drink Gatorade as long as I keep my sugar uh, in a proper range? Yeah, so, so Gatorade, is, as you know, has uh, you know, some other things in it. So it has some electrolytes, those being mostly sodium and uh -huh. potassium. It does, does have a lot of sodium in it. It does also have some glucose. Um, now if you, you know, when people say hydrated and this is part of the marketing of Gatorade, I've, I've drank Gatorade from time to time. And certainly if I'm outside, particularly in hot weather for more than 45 minutes, I might drink Gatorade or Powerade or another electrolyte rehydration solution, but mm -hmm. you actually don't need to drink it. I mean, if it's more for, you know, taste or things like that, if you're just drinking it day to day, it is extra calories with the glucose and extra sodium. Um, mm -hmm. that you're consuming. Mm -hmm. uh, water is perfectly fine. Um, if you're not, again, out in the, in the heat or outside for more than 45 minutes at a time getting moderate to vigorous exercise, water is just perfectly fine and you don't have to eat, drink that Gatorade. That being mm -hmm. said, if you just, you know, like I just have to have my Gatorade, I can't drink water and your blood sugar is fine, both your fasting blood sugar uh, and your A1C, which is that three-month average blood sugar, if those are fine, I would say just keep doing what you're doing. But you don't have to drink Gatorade for hydration. Water is mm -hmm. perfectly fine throughout the day uh, for I doing that. I think I do it for, for taste, just for the pleasure yeah. of it more than anything. And uh, I'm, I'm in the process of making a transition to bottled water because I figure it yeah better in yeah. the long run and and they yeah. do have some that don't have they have you know artificial sweeteners or artificial um you know they have some that taste more like sort of a fruity taste to it that you can add to that 
if you if you need that sort of taste. I've, okay. Most people, okay. if you make that transition like you're talking about, you know, most people will will be able to do that. There is some, I understand, you know, depending on what your water supply is and if you're drinking it out, out from the tap, there are some, you know, some water supplies, there's a little bit of a taste there that's unpalatable to some people. But, um, yeah, I think that's fine. There are Gatorades that have less sugar in them, too. Uh, okay. So they're lower sugar content. Um, but if you're, I think the best thing would be sort of to make that, make that uh, transition off of it to filter or bottle water. Uh-huh. And then okay. you could use some of those, you know, flavoring uh, additives to that that don't have sugar sure. in it. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much, doctor. All right, Rachel. Thank you. Let's go to Jim in Hattiesburg. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Uh, I am calling to ask, uh, I have a schizoaffective disorder. And I have been doing research and found that historically, uh, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, these mental disorders that go after the executive functions of the brain, they, they tend to result in life expectancies that are much lower than average. And I'm wondering if I'm looking at data from, you know, earlier in time and whether there has been a change in the kind of uh, life expectancies a person can expect uh, with, with these diseases. Yeah, those are great questions. So, so uh, schizo, um, schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. So there's a sort of a spectrum in different diagnoses there. There are separate diagnoses um, along with other uh, uh, diagnoses that are involved with mental health. Um, you know, there's been a lot of research looking at life expectancy and if that has been, uh, you know, along with we, we know that it can affect certainly other things that you do on a daily basis, your interactions with other people, your work, your job, your family. And certainly we've got great medications now and, and uh, therapies that can help uh, a person reach a sort of a normal uh, day to day activities on all those things that we just mentioned. But life expectancy is one of those that we have recognized is lower in schizoaffective and schizophrenia. And uh, your, your question really goes to the specifics of that. So you have to know, okay, when did we first look at that, start looking at it? And it, was it at a time in the past when we didn't have good therapies? Um, is it, uh, you know, certain populations within those two groups that um, or, uh, live longer or didn't live longer for one reason or another. W- one of the common things that sort of plays into that is the increased risk of suicide um, from uh, schizophrenia. And we know that that is a common, uh, you know, it's a little bit more common in individuals who deal with that. And certainly that's one of the things that your, your psychiatrist, that your physician would be, um, you know, uh, pointedly asking questions about that and evaluating you for a risk of that. Um, but I think you're right. I think we've gotten, particularly in the last five to 10 years, so much better with uh, knowing what works and uh, with different treatments that are very effective in both of those disorders. I think that it w- hopefully we'll see an increase in life expectancy with both of those. The best things that have been associated with that, and again, this is not my area of expertise, but what I've seen uh, the last time I looked at this was that um, 
if you stick with your physician on a regular basis, that you're monitoring for some of the uh, some of the uh, bad outcomes uh, that that are associated with uh, schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder, then you can uh, you know you can prevent those and get on the medications that are going to keep you healthy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Got some great calls this hour about all kinds of different things, uh, whether it's uh, COVID-related or not. I know that sort of eclipsed a lot. Um, One thing that I didn't mention, uh, Jim had a great question about, uh, you know, sort of how uh, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder might affect somebody's uh, life expectancy. One of the things you have to uh, think about, too, is all the normal things that decrease that as well. So, for instance, cardiovascular disease. Um, Now, while you may be going to a psychiatrist to see the schizophrenia, uh, to see you for schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, uh, that doesn't mean that you can skip going to your physician to make sure that your risk of cardiovascular disease or cancer or those kinds of health issues aren't addressed as well. And uh, that's important to, to note. Um, uh, sometimes the, the severity of one disease can sort of push those other things aside. That's why it's important to have a primary care physician that can look at the whole picture and uh, they can direct you sort of like a, uh, uh, a director of an orchestra uh, um, can, uh, can direct the various instruments. They can direct you to subspecialists if you need them. Uh, if they think that you have a risk of heart disease or lung disease, they can point you in those directions. But they can also do things like suggest which uh, vaccines that you might need or what uh, kind of health uh, changes, behavioral changes that you need to make to improve your health. So just a couple other things to keep in mind as you're dealing with um, whatever that one illness that you're dealing with. Don't forget to, uh, to keep looking at other things as well because those things are important. Um, I did want to mention a little bit about uh, the vaccine. I know a lot of people are asking me, so did you get it? Uh, what's going on with it? Uh, what's been your experience? Uh, so about two and a half weeks ago is when I got mine uh, on a Friday morning. And uh, again, it was a really uh, exciting time. I was helping give them uh, for about a five-hour shift in the morning uh, here at uh, the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And uh, uh 
the the symptoms really are about the same as what you would normally have with the flu vaccine. So had a little bit of pain in the area, uh, really not much at all when I got a little bit of soreness later on in the day, not anything that kept me down uh, from doing what I would normally do. I didn't personally have any fever or fatigue or uh, short, you know, anything else like that. Uh, no redness at the arm site. Now, sometimes some patients may have those a little bit, uh, a little bit of fever, 99 to 100 uh, is what I've heard from a few people, uh, and then some soreness at the injection site. But really, again, nothing uh, other than what you would normally experience with the flu vaccine. Um, it is, uh, you know, a, a time when we're looking at, I know the uh, State Department of Health uh, and other organizations are sort of coordinating the distribution of vaccine to, uh, to uh, have sort of a tiered approach to doing that. So as you probably know, healthcare professionals who are dealing with COVID patients who are uh, seeing patients that might be at risk for that and front, other frontline workers are getting it first. Um, and uh, we've broadened it out here, had enough vaccine coming in that we've, uh, of course, vaccinated our residents and students that are seeing patients and other people in the hospital system. Uh, probably in the next couple of weeks, I know a lot of private pharmacies have begun to give out uh, both the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, vaccinations uh, to their em employees and, uh, and patients. High-risk patients, which we know older patients, particularly those who have hypertension and other chronic uh, diseases, might be at increased risk for this. So I think you're probably going to see in the next two to four weeks a lot more opportunities to get this. Keep in mind that both of those vaccines, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, are a two-vaccination series. So you do have to, to sort of adhere to that. My uh, second vaccination dose, which I mentioned earlier, is on the 8th, that's uh, 17 to 21 days after the first one. So you do have to get both of those. But again, about 95% protected uh, after receiving those. So that in combination with what we've uh, already been doing to try to decrease transmission, hopefully will uh, uh, make things look a lot different uh, and uh, better for everybody, uh, hopefully by the end of, uh, or by the first of the summer. So. That's what uh, that's what we're all hoping for, and uh, we all are trying to to do our best to get to. Uh, Doctor Jimmy, I wanted to jump in here. I uh, got about a minute left in the show, the last show sure. of 2020. I'm sure most of us are glad that uh, 2020 is in the rearview mirror. It's been difficult for all of us. But I just wanted to say thank you for what you do each week uh, for MPB, but also more importantly for the our listeners, uh, the Mississippians out there who tune in and give you such a wide variety of questions. And it's always amazing to me how... Uh, you know, we can see each other, and you're not you're not looking things up in books. I mean, you might check to double check yourself, but it's amazing to me your body of knowledge and the way that you can explain things and that sort of thing. So I just wanted to say, uh, happy New Year, and thank you so much uh, for what you do uh, for all of us in Mississippi. Well, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. Just kind words, and uh, enjoy enjoy what we can do to to serve the citizens of the state. State. So I hope everybody has a great New Year. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.